Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Cypress Bible Church. I want to thank you for being here this morning. And those of you who are able to join us online, welcome as well. What a, what a great thing to have that technology that we can actually gather together virtually. And someday we'll all gather together again. This morning, we'd like to open with a, a little different song that talks about the different names of God in the Old Testament. He is known as Jehovah but in different ways the the hebrew people would talk about him as the god that provides that heals that delivers so as we sing this song it's a bit of a jewish song and i realize most of us are gentile but it's okay i think the the spirit of the lord can carry us along through this he is jehovah God of creation, He is Jehovah, Lord God Almighty, the balm of Gilead, the rock of ages. He is Jehovah, the God that healeth thee. Sing Alleluia, sing Alleluia, sing Alleluia, sing Alleluia.
We may be grafted in, but we can, we can do it with the best of them, right? How great thou art, that's our God. He is the great one. together from the Word of God, this uh, great God we've just sung about, uh, loved us so much that He sent His Son into this world, humbling Himself to the point of death on the cross. And this uh, passage from uh, the prophet Isaiah, 
I would like us to read together and uh, remind ourselves of this ancient prophecy years before, centuries before the birth, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus, we clearly see, refers this suffering servant to the one God sent to be our Savior. Would you read with me? Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat and allow me the privilege of praying on behalf of all of us. Join me in that. O Lord our God, you are great and greatly to be praised. We stand in awe of your plan, your power, your provision for us. That before time began, you arranged that we would have a Savior to rescue us from our sinful, hopeless condition. Lord, thank you for all that you have provided. I would ask this morning that we would be reminded and overwhelmed all over again of all that you have provided for us. That as we sing together, as we hear your word, as we eat and drink the elements of communion, that we would be filled with gratitude over all that you have provided. Lord, I know that there is suffering in our midst, that there is pain, there's conflict, there's trial, there's, there's uncertainty, there's fear and anxiety, all these things that so humanly bubble up within us. And so, Lord, I would pray that your healing peace and power would flow into our lives through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that we would realize all over again that the greatest answers, the greatest questions have been answered in life through the good news, the gospel of Jesus. Comfort us, encourage us, empower us with these truths today, that we would leave this time of corporate worship together giving you praise and honor, that we would enter back into the situations that we feel are challenging with new hope, with fresh encouragement by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we honor you today. We know that you are in our midst and pray, Lord, that we would be open to hearing from you, seeing you, allowing you place in our lives that is not second, but first. For you and you alone are deserving, and we pray this in the name of our precious Savior Jesus. Amen. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain 
sixth grade, I joined a weightlifting club after school. So several days a week, I uh, hung out with some of my friends. And the reason uh, I joined was because my French teacher was the weightlifting club leader. He was kind of a built guy and uh, thought, yeah, I'd like to look like that. So started lifting weights after school. And uh, also learned some French words that uh, he didn't teach us in French class. But there were uh, encouragements. The French version of no pain, no gain was uh, yelled at us quite a bit. Souffrer! Suffer, he said. Suffer. So I didn't really take weightlifting all that seriously. I mean, did it off and on through school and never got too serious. My brother, on the other hand, my little brother, he did get very involved in weightlifting and uh, entered a bodybuilding competition or two and uh, lifted weights throughout uh, for decades uh, throughout his military career his joints are paying for it now, but uh, he did a lot of suffering, taught other people how to lift weights. Decades went by after my sixth grade experience, and uh, I was going to the gym two, three times a week and using weight machine equipment and other things of that nature. My brother came to visit me and I thought, what if I had him as a trainer just for this little time that he was here? He could teach me, maybe work on uh, some things that he's learned through the years. And so uh, he agreed. He's, he's always anxious to teach me things as my little brother. So we went to my gym. He got in as a, a guest and, and uh, he said, no, we, we don't mess with the, the weight machines. We go to the free weights. That's where the real men hang out. So he started to show me, here's what you need to do. You need to do reps of this many times uh, of this weight, and you need to do this on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then you need to, another day for leg day. And, you, and so he was going through all these things with me, and he was doing them and demonstrating, have me do them. And, and I don't know, within the hour, I, I first started to try and write some things down and uh, remember this, and then somewhere along the way in that first hour, I realized I couldn't lift my arms anymore. And I decided that uh, there was no gain worth this pain. And that was the last time I ever did that. Souffrer. Suffer. Has all kinds of different meanings and connotations. In this series, we're studying seven different scenes in the Gospel of Luke. And, and the purpose, uh, as we look at each of these scenes in the life and ministry of Jesus, is that we become more like Jesus. And today, the title is Suffering Like Jesus. And it has all kinds of different meanings and connotations, I think, when, when we even hear that word, whatever language it's in. But if your faith is in Christ alone, God is at work right now, whether you're aware of it or not, shaping you into the image of His Son. You can resist that, uh, but that's what God is working out in your life as a follower of Christ. And for you to become more like Jesus, expect some suffering. 
whatever pain you go through, it's really all rather pointless unless you know who Jesus is. Your trust is in Him. We come this morning to this scene in Luke chapter 9 that actually occurs in the other synoptic gospels as well. But here in Luke 9, beginning in verse 18, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks, Who do the crowds say I am? Now remember, this is a point, Jesus is already massively popular. I mean, it, the people are just astounded by him. They're enamored with his teaching. He doesn't teach like anybody else they've heard before. He says things in a way that they've just not heard before. And they're amazed, certainly, by his miracles. I mean, it only takes one miracle to be amazing, but Jesus has done a few. And in fact, uh, uh, just before this scene in Luke 9, the, the, the crowds, the masses of people followed Jesus out into the middle of nowhere, and they didn't have anything to eat. Suddenly, they're out in the middle of nowhere with no, no provision. And what does Jesus do but miraculously provide, produce food for 5,000 people more and, and had baskets left over? An astounding miracle. So Jesus had celebrity status. And he asks the disciples, well, who, who do they think I am? And, and the disciples say, well, some of them think you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. And others of you think that you're a prophet who's basically time-traveled here from the ancient past. Nobody expressed the opinion from the crowd, that the disciples said, that, that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah at this point. So then Jesus turned to his disciples, and verse 20, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. So Peter's the spokesman for the whole group. And the disciples saw something of Jesus far more than a resurrected prophet or a miracle-working influencer. They believed that he was Tone Christone, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the long-awaited Deliverer, the Messiah of God, the God-sent One. Now, uh, honestly, they did not understand what all this meant. I mean, Peter makes this declaration. He doesn't really get it. But they saw him as God's promised one. Now, nothing else matters, by the way, if you don't accept the exclusive claims of Jesus. Not your religion, not your good works, not, as we talked about, loving your enemy, even. As difficult and as supernatural as that is, uh, not even that matters if you don't accept the exclusive claims of Jesus. The person of Jesus is primary. His work is primary. This summer, uh, a survey of American teens and young adults found that moral relativism was the majority opinion. Now, moral relativism has been a, a strong opinion across all age groups, but it's growing, and it's growing fastest in that demographic of age 13 to 21. And so, uh, to, to just help you understand a little bit about moral relativism, here is the, uh, the primary question that revealed it. 65% in that age group believe that many religions can lead to eternal life. So that is a significant majority that's growing. In each survey, that percentage gets bigger. Now that's not to say that Generation Z is less interested in Jesus. That's not to say that they, they don't recognize a spiritual dimension to life. But what this points out is that they don't really take seriously that Jesus said He is the way the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. That's a pretty exclusive claim. And a growing number of Americans in all demographics say, well, that's not really so. And that flaw is fatal. That's why Jesus asked that question, because really nothing else matters unless you understand that He is the Christ of God. The sent one, the promised one, the Messiah. So after asking this question and getting the answer, 
verse 21, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So if it's so important, why does he want to keep it a secret? It's a good question. Well, he wants to keep it a secret because it is not his time. Uh, Israel, uh, his people, they're expecting a political Messiah. They're expecting one who would free them from Roman opposition, oppression. The, the oppressors, the Roman Empire, have them under control. They're looking for a deliverer. And so if the crowds heard that Messiah had arrived and, and uh, he's authenticated here with these miracles and these astounding words, then it would incite the crowd and it, and it would cause Rome to respond to stop the insurrection that would occur. And, and that was not yet the time as repeatedly people tried to either force Jesus to be king or uh, tried to kill him. Uh, it was all stopped because it wasn't the time. Now is not the time for uh, the crowds to, to recognize his claims of messiahship because the, the, the Roman government would beat and kill Jesus and it was not yet the time for them to do so. Now eventually Jesus told his followers to go everywhere with this message. To, to go, spread this very news. And he says, now I want you to keep it a secret. Keep it quiet. But not yet. So from his words here and in the verses that follow i want to point out to you two musts of suffering two musts of suffering very basic but extremely crucial the the first must is in what jesus already said that jesus must suffer for you he must that's we said the son of man that's that incredible old testament title for the Messiah, says he must suffer. That word must means it's necessary, it's right, it's proper that he suffer. And that had to surprise Peter and the rest of the disciples because suffering was not what they were looking for in a Messiah, not at all. They expected a military general. They expected a magnificent monarch, not a sufferer. And Jesus not only tells them that that must happen, he also tells them who's going to do it, who's going to produce this suffering, who will cause it. It is the leaders of his people who will do it. So don't miss the irony here. It's not the worst people who kill Jesus, it's the best. He wasn't torn to pieces by an angry mob. He wasn't knifed in the back by an assassin. He wasn't accidentally killed by friendly fire. The religious leaders, the legal experts, the political rulers had Jesus legally put to death by the Roman government. And then Jesus also promises that that death would not be final. That resurrection would happen in three days. See, the, the meaning of Jesus' life and mission is not about victory and success. It's about rejection, suffering, and death. And what I, I'm always amazed when I read these words of Jesus in the Gospels, which they're repeated several times, is he's very clear. This is alarming news. He says, I'm going to be murdered. This son of man is going to be murdered, and he names the murderers, and the death isn't going to be a mistake. It's intentional. It must happen. And Jesus is not running from it. He's walking toward it with purpose. And Jesus is so clear about this that Peter chews him out. Uh, we see that in, in this account in Mark 8 and Matthew 16, where Jesus makes the statement about his suffering, and Peter says, no, nah, it's not going to happen. That's, he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus turns right around and rebukes Peter. Why? Because for Jesus to avoid suffering was a satanic idea. He says, get behind me, Satan. So for Jesus, the, the concept of avoiding suffering, even to the point of death, was satanic. Suffering was what Jesus must do because it was the only way for God's plan to succeed. And without it, there would be no salvation. To deny, 
to ignore, to avoid the death of Jesus is the work of Satan. I can't say that strongly enough. So any church, any preacher, any spiritual leader, any professed Christian who doesn't emphasize this very truth fails to preach the gospel in every way. The suffering, death, resurrection of Jesus doesn't make human sense, but it is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. Uh, Put it this way. The bloody death of Jesus is the blazing center of God's glory and purpose. And we can't bypass it, minimize it, ignore it in any way other than to our peril. It is the light by which you see everything else. Because unless you trust in his sacrifice, you are lost. That's basic. But it must not be ignored. Jesus must suffer for you. And when that's true, and when you accept that and receive this, then you must understand this, the second must of suffering. The one that we don't talk about as much. And that is that you must suffer for Jesus. Because his words continue in Luke 9, as well as the other places where, the other Gospels where this is mentioned. And he said to all, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So since God's plan for Jesus included suffering and death, you, in following him, can expect some pain and agony as well so don't be surprised if you experience some misery because of your faith not in spite of it but because of it because just as it was with jesus god uses what was meant for evil to be good for your good and if you're going to be identified with him then be prepared for that in fact the very act of identifying with jesus can be painful And if you are in a different country, identifying with Jesus through baptism can mean your life. Certainly it can mean a great cost of being rejected by your family. We don't experience that too much in this world, in the United States. But identifying with Jesus can be quite painful. And that pain comes from denying yourself and following Jesus. Denial is turning from self-focus to God-focus. It's shifting uh, my emphasis from me and my will to God and His will. Denying means being ready to suffer with Him and for Him. and No longer being preoccupied with me and my wants, but with God and what He wants. And, and to focus only on my comfort, my goals, my success, means I ultimately lose it all. Now, I'm not going to categorize what suffering for Jesus is or isn't to a great extent. But whenever you put God's desires above your own, as Jesus calls you to do, you can expect some pain. And when Jesus says, follow me, uh, it's a, it's a present imperative that he uses. He, he calls you to, take, to, to, to have a sustained pursuit of him. To constantly go after him. Pursuing Jesus involves taking up the cross. Now sometimes people refer to anything difficult in their life as their cross. As Jesus does personalize it. He talks about having to take up your cross. But some people say, would think, you know, arthritis is the cross that I bear, or cancer is the cross that I bear, or my spouse is the cross that I bear, whatever they go with. But no, we must be clear how Jesus, the disciples very much knew what the cross was about. It was the horrible instrument of death reserved for criminals and rebels and slaves. It was punishment for the lowest and the worst in that society. 
death in the most shameful, excruciating way possible. That's how they understood that word from Jesus. And he said, you need to be willing to to pick that up daily. If you're going to follow me, you must be willing to give up everything, your desires, your agenda, your respectability, your comfort, your safety, even life itself. If you're pursuing me, every day you must be prepared to die. We have very few songs written on these verses. We have quite a few songs written that Jesus must suffer for you. This is gospel truth. Very few written about us suffering for Jesus. Understanding what we need to do to follow his word. He calls us to die to our self-focus. To, to reorient from doing what I want to doing what God wants. And, and that involves suffering. It's interesting, I met um, uh, a woman uh, a month ago about, when she found out that I was a pastor, she said, you're not one of those politically correct preachers, are you? And I honestly did not know what she meant by that. And I said, I do not know what you mean by that. And she wasn't really helpful in defining that, but I, you know, I, I, I wonder, I pose some, some guesses as to what that means. Does that, does that mean that, that I'm somebody who's not afraid to make racially charged slurs against uh, our vice president, as some pastors have done in this last week? Is that what that means? I'm not sure. But I said, I preach the Scriptures and I present the Gospel of Jesus Christ and I call people to follow Jesus as I need to follow Jesus. And sometimes that might end up with me being politically incorrect, but if it involves calling people names and and, uh, not loving my enemies, then no, that's not what I do. I want to encourage you because we're kind of stuck here in our country right now. Don't mistake suffering for your political viewpoint as suffering for Jesus. Not the same thing. Uh, Don't equate your views on climate change with standing up for Jesus. Uh, Don't connect your disapproval with other people's lifestyles as suffering for Jesus. Don't, don't confuse your anger about how things are going in the world as standing for Jesus. Following Jesus means acting in love to the worst and the least. It, it means living in the power of the Spirit. Being Spirit-powered, as we talked about two weeks ago, every day. It means speaking in grace and truth. It means giving your life for the Gospel. Now let me point out that when Jesus says, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. When he talks about losing your life, the Greek word is sukein, which is most often translated your soul. It's your whole life. The sukein is the totality of who you are. It's the essential you that's worth more than anything else in this world. I've shared before this this thing that happened on eBay a while back where a university student named Adam Bertels um, put his soul up for sale on eBay. And the bidding started at five cents, and Adam's ex-girlfriend bid $6.66, which shows you what she thought of him. The winning bid was $400 from a woman in Iowa, and then upon that winning bid, uh, eBay suspended the transaction for all human souls. As ridiculous as that is, I think most people would still be kind of afraid to auction their soul. But millions, according to what Jesus says here, that's what commonly happens. But in less obvious ways. They trade their soul for a beautiful home or for a sexual fantasy or a stable family or an education or a secure job or successful business or an addiction or a comfortable retirement. And some of those things can be good things, but they can never, none of them can ever be ultimate things 
None of them are worth your soul, your real life. But Jesus says he is. Don't risk your soul on anything else other than him. It's right to risk everything on him. Risk always seeking your own comfort. Resist always seeking your own agenda. Reject always seeking your own prosperity for Jesus. There's suffering involved in that. And that's the life to which Jesus calls us. And then he says, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now let me tell you that being ashamed of Jesus is not simply about keeping quiet when you should have spoken up. It's, it's not simply failing to share your faith when you had the opportunity. Those are momentary lapses of courage. I've had my share of those. No, Jesus is referring to the settled state of your heart. If you are not proud of him, if you do not treasure him and what he did for you on the cross, if he's not prized above everything else, you are in fact ashamed of him. Anyone who thinks the cross, the way of salvation, the very words of Jesus and the person of Jesus are embarrassing will be lost. If you don't mind being identified with Jesus around certain people, but you do mind being identified with him around other people, you're ashamed of him. If you're willing to associate with Jesus in church, but not in other parts of your life, you're ashamed of him. And if that's the settled state of your heart, then ultimately he won't associate with you. If you value your status more than you value Christ, then that's the way he's going to treat you on judgment day, he says. If you like some of what Jesus said, but you reject other parts of his teaching as ridiculous, then that's dangerous ground. Since Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, if you see that ransom as an embarrassment, then you aren't ransomed. Being ashamed of the ransom cuts you off from Jesus. Nothing else can save you, only Christ alone. Clinging only to him involves some suffering. So, so what is the purpose of God in suffering? Let, let me point out a couple of things. One, 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 one is gain. Suffering produces gain. God uses suffering to produce Christ-likeness in us. And often it's the most painful things in our lives that, that shape us more into the character of Jesus than anything else. That's why, as Romans 5.3 says, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces Christ's character in us. A.G. Fernando, the, uh, a Christian leader from Sri Lanka, thinks that American Christians are, are always talking about how to avoid or escape suffering. And he said, this attitude is a severe restriction of spiritual growth. In other words, this, this uh, desire to constantly escape suffering in, in any form it, it re- restricts our growth. In Christ how much time and effort do we spend trying to avoid the very thing God is using to make us more like Jesus and, and that's why Paul said in Philippians 3 8 that, that he considered everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord for whose sake I've lost all things that I may gain Christ the more you identify with Jesus and follow after him and experience taking up your cross the more you will become like Jesus and God intends for you to gain Christ-likeness in that. See, I like this, uh, the concept that God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me he wants. And I, and I must... It is probably the most difficult thing for me is to be at the bedside, be in the presence of someone who is in tremendous pain. And there's nothing I can do. This week I have talked with, I have prayed with, I have been next to people in unrelenting pain. And it is so, so very difficult to see that in someone and feel so helpless. But Every pain is an invitation to cling to Jesus. Every pain in your life. It's that invitation to cry out to God, to be God-dependent in your life when there's nothing else. God's at work to produce the you He wants. And then 
God's other purpose is glory. That's what Jesus talks about here, that, that suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. Jesus says, don't let suffering make you ashamed of me now, or you're going to miss out on the glory later. How you react to Jesus now will be how Jesus reacts to you before the throne of God. Your willingness to identify with Jesus, to trust his word, brings the possibility of suffering in your life. And so you may not get that promotion. You might, not, you might lose that relationship. You, you might fail to accumulate uh, wealth. You might be shunned by your family. You might get an F for A work. Uh, you might not experience a lot of things that, that you uh, anticipated. You might not have time to do the things that you'd like to do because you are investing time in serving Jesus. You may be dismissed as naive by the educated. You may be called foolish by society. Your circle of friends may shut you out, but God will accept you when he returns in glory. And holding on to that promise of future glory is crucial when suffering comes in your life. Jesus was impaled on a cross, bearing the sin of the world, and he went through that for the joy set before him he endured the suffering by keeping future glory in mind suffering and glory are very much tied together in scripture as romans 8 18 says our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed you need that glimpse of glory today in whatever suffering that you're in and jesus said at the end of this passage he said that some of them before they die they would see the kingdom and just a week later some of them did see heavenly glory. Jesus took Peter, John, and James to a mountaintop to pray, and there Jesus was transfigured. His face, his whole appearance, even his clothes were dazzlingly bright. And the voice of the Father spoke and said, This is my son, listen to him. This glimpse of power and of the kingdom encouraged the disciples. It was a sight they never forgot for the rest of their lives. And in their misery it provoked awe and worship and wonder you need a glimpse of that glory today let me just put it this way that becoming like jesus means you will suffer on the path to glory that's not the most inspiring message is it but it's the message of jesus you want to become more like him i tell you as you follow him you're going to suffer but you're on the path to glory I don't know what you're going through. I, I don't know if you're suffering at this very moment. I don't know why you are suffering if you are. I don't know how much you're suffering. I, I don't know if your pain is great or small. I don't know if your struggle is in the past or the present or coming in the future. I don't know if your suffering is relational pain or physical agony or emotional hurt or financial loss or spiritual despair. But to every one of you who clings to Jesus, I encourage you to walk on to walk on god is with you in your darkest hour even through the valley of the shadow of death the very fact that you identify with jesus means there will be suffering on this journey but glory is on the way and that path will not be easy but the struggle you're experiencing right now doesn't begin to compare with the glory that's to come walk on Listen to just a little bit of the lyrics from a favorite song of mine by that name. You're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been. A place that has to be believed to be seen. Walk on. Walk on. What you've got, they can't deny it, can't sell it or buy it. Walk on walk on so this morning family of god know again that jesus must suffer for you and you must suffer for jesus not to earn your salvation but because god has your gain and growth and glory ahead and in that struggle Walk on for what he has in store for you. It is so crucial that today as part of our worship we remember the suffering and death of Jesus with the elements that he gave us to do that. So I would encourage you to take the cup 
that I trust you picked up on the way in. If not, feel free to go and get one at the door. Because in a moment we will take this bread, that top tab comes off, and the bread that represents the, the body of our Lord Jesus, the one that bore our sin, the one that suffered for us. And then the cup, that emblem, the symbol of His blood. Because it was the death of Jesus. Not just simply suffering, but suffering to the point of death on the cross. The spilling out of His life's blood that made salvation possible. We do this in remembrance of Him. As Jesus called and taught His disciples on the night that He was betrayed, so He says to us today to remember Him in this way until He returns. Why? We, you and I, need to be reminded that Jesus suffered for us. And we need to be reminded that because He suffered, we too will suffer. But glory is on the way. So Lord, we give You thanks for these elements. We thank You for this bread and this cup. We rejoice in what they mean. It is a sobering moment to consider. And yet there is celebration as well. So Lord, as You have called us to do, we now eat and drink in remembrance of what You have done for us. Jesus said to His disciples, this is My body given for you. Take and eat. Let us eat. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood spilled out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And in this way, we remember our Lord's death until He comes again. benediction from 1 Peter. Peter, 
who wrote about suffering because it was something he came to know about pretty clearly in his life, writing to a church that was suffering because of Jesus. And his closing words in the end of 1 Peter, I want to pray for you this morning. And now after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be power forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Thou art, then sings my soul.